Um, so it's been a little bit over a month that we've actually been in the book of Peter. We've been in this book for, I don't know, a couple months now and just making our way through it. It's kind of one of the, you know, MOs by which we typically uh, come together and we study scripture. We let God speak to us and show us who he is and what he's like by way of the scripture. And in this new little adventure that we find ourselves in is we're looking at the writing of Peter, first Peter, and we're uh, spending some time investing ourselves, our energy, our time, our thoughts into this book. Uh, One of the things I created for you guys, uh, you're more than welcome to uh, utilize it. Um, My hope would be that you would utilize it. It's a resource guide. Uh, The best way to access that is you see the little QR codes around the parking lot. If not, if you can't find one, the little table that's back there, uh, go back there. There should be a big QR code right there. Just go ahead and scan that. And on that should be the access to the resource guide. Uh, The big idea behind that is just to help you um, be equipped with some tools to understand this incredibly rich book called Peter. And what I want to do today is, since it's been such a while since we've been in the book of Peter, and because of that, uh, the reason for that is because we had Easter, before that we had Palm Sunday, after that we had an entirely different message, and then you get the idea. So, But the point that I want to make is we're going to be jumping back into the book of Peter, and if you're like me, um, it's, look, I'm teaching this stuff, and it's really easy for me to just forget, like, what what was that passage all about? I don't even remember right now. Um, So I don't want to presume that you have remembered exactly where we left off. So what I want to do right now is I want to, as we jump back into the book of Peter, I'm going to do a little bit of like regurgitation, kind of looking back at what we saw, what we read. So some of this is going to be a little bit of overlap. Um, the last two guys that had uh, taught here on this subject or in the book of Peter was Pastor James um, and then a, a good friend of mine named Connor Barry. He's actually from Santa Maria. So both these guys taught and before that I was actually gone for the a couple weeks. So here we are getting back into the book of First Peter. In fact, how about we all stand? We're going to read kind of a little bit of a lengthy passage. It's not going to take that long, but First Peter chapter 1 verses 13 through verse 25. Verse 13 through 25. I'm going to read so you can just follow along. I'm actually using the uh, ESV English Standard Version and uh, just listen up. Here's what it says. Verse 13 says this. Put my glasses on so I can read. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, so you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call upon him as a father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. Verse 20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. And was made manifest in these last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable 
through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is grass, and all glory is like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. And this is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for what you've spoken to us. And God, we come right now, we come with open hearts. And God, if our hearts are not open, if our hearts are wounded or vulnerable or feeling just tired or exhausted, God, right now in this moment, be for us everything that we need you to be. Be our strength where we're weak. Be our hope where we're in despair. Be the lifter of our heads. We just commit this morning in your hands and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you all grab a seat? All right, I want to start with a question. Start with a question. So what do companies like, it's going to be totally random, what, what do companies like REI, Zappos, and Starbucks all have in common? What? High prices. High prices. <laughs> Customer service. Anybody else? Shareholders? Is that what you said? Someone said that? Shareholders? Okay. Sure. Okay. Good. You guys answered, I think correctly, but probably not the right answer that I was looking for. I was looking for. So good, good answers. So here's, here's what I discovered about each one of these companies that these companies out of several other companies, probably a good 10, 20 or so over the past five to eight years have been nominated as having the, the best corporate culture to work for. And that's very intentional. And what's fascinating to me, I mean, you can throw Google into the list there and Facebook and some of these other Twitter apparently as well. But the point that I would make is that what I discovered is that each one of these companies, they're very, very intentional about training people. So for example, let's say you go get a job at Starbucks. Um, They will spend time training you to learn, to absorb, to live out the specific values and corporate culture that they want to embody. So in other words, you can come there and be like, hey, I worked at local mom and pop coffee shop here in San Luis Obispo. And they're going to say, that, that's nice, I think. Like I'm putting words in their mouth. They're probably say something like this. That's nice, but that's not who we are. We are Starbucks. We're not mom and pop coffee shop. And these are the values that we imbibe and embody. And this is what we want you to embody as a Starbucks employee. And again, like I said, apparently, based upon the polls and whoever's doing these pollings, uh, they have the best of the best corporate culture in America. And the reason why I think this is important, because I think this is exactly what Peter is basically saying to his audience. It's like, you once lived according to the course of the world, the corporate culture of the world, that was once what you were familiar with, that you embodied, that you imbibed. Now you belong to Jesus. There's a new value system. There's a new characteristic trait. There's a new skill set, new form of uh, understanding of who you are and how you're to live out. This is what Peter's saying is that now live according to that. Recognize that. Identify that. There is a new corporate culture as a community of Jesus people that we are called to embody. And I think this is exactly what Peter's saying. And his invitation to those to whom he's writing is to say live according to that. Number one, do you acknowledge that? Do you recognize that? Do you know who you are? And I would suggest to you this, that we live in a culture today where there's a lot of, um, I don't know, misinformation about who Christians are, or maybe maybe it's accurate information that just kind of gets 
uh, blown out of proportion because Christians oftentimes send misinformation. In other words, Christians might have a little bit of a fuzziness as to who am I? How am I supposed to live? And look, we live in a culture where Christians have not always been the best representatives of who Jesus is. We've not always rightly embodied the life of Jesus. And that sends mixed messages to the larger world where the world kind of looks at Christians. They're like, I don't get it. They claim to follow Jesus. Jesus seems to be this way and they seem to be this way. There's total confusion. And rightly so. I think all of us can probably give our own little, you know, testimonial stories as to how we have all been confused by the story, by the life, by the lifestyle of some who claim to follow Jesus, right? Would you, would you agree with that? I think we all have been down that path before. And what Peter's trying to say is that, look, as followers of Jesus, as people that have been redeemed by Jesus, live in the way that Jesus has called you to live. Now, this is what I want to begin to think about as we jump into this. Now, before we begin to unpack kind of the bigger, broader element, I think there's one little phrase that I want to think about and consider. Um, in some ways, it's sort of a pivotal verse that I think it's important for us to just pause, to reflect upon it, to think about it. It's kind of, it might even be offensive, to be quite frank with you, but it's one of those hard sayings that I think we have to just pause, think about, reflect upon. So it's actually in verse 18. I'll read it again. Just listen to it. Here's what he says. Verse 18, knowing that you are ransomed or redeemed or rescued. You can use any of those words. Again, we're going to look more deeply into this passage when we get there in the next week or so. But I want to just highlight it because I think it, it's important to stem into the remainder of what he's going to describe. Knowing that you were ransomed from, then he says, the feudal ways inherited by your forefathers. So what he seems to be pointing out is that, look, you have been rescued, ransomed. Who, who is the you he's talking to? He's talking to followers of Jesus, those who are now part of Team Jesus. In other words, a brand new corporate culture is to be lived out. So what does that corporate culture of those who are faithful now to Jesus look like? So why is this important? I'll just say this. Because if there is a degree of confusion as to what a Christian is and how are they supposed to live, then you can be certain that our lives will live forth confusion. We will bring forth confusion. What I think Peter's trying to say is that as we live faithful to the vision that God has given to us, then it will not necessarily always bring absolute perfect clarity, but it will at least remove the consistent, constant form of confusion that might oftentimes be there. So what I want for us to think about when we begin to link, look at this particular passage where he says, Jesus has actually rescued you, ransomed you from this past life, which he actually uses this phrase, feudal, feudal ways. That's what I want to think about before we jump into the rest of this. Feudal ways. Now, I'm going to read a couple different translations because a particular phrase, it's actually a three-word phrase in the Greek that gets translated as just feudal ways in some of your passages. Um, I'll, I'll read this to you in some of other different translations just so you can get a, wrap your mind around what I think Peter's trying to describe. Number one in the ESV, we just read that. Feudal ways is the way it translates this. In the New Living Translation, he says, God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life. The empty life. So feudal ways gets translated as empty life. The NIV says, you are redeemed from the empty way of life. So he adds the word way, the empty way of life by which you've lived. Listen to how the Amplified Version translates this. Uh, you are redeemed from your useless, and then parentheses, unproductive, 
spirituality or spiritual, spiritually unproductivity, unproductiveness. That's the big idea that I think that he's trying to convey is that what I think Peter's suggesting is that apart from Jesus, apart from giving our lives, living our lives in the way that God, the architect of the universe and of your heart has intended, will ultimately lead to a degree of spiritual unproductivity whereby we will not be living to the fullness that God has intended for us. Again, we can use the word futile. We can use the word empty. That's the big idea. So if I were to spin that into a positive sense, I would look at it this way. The opposite of that would be a fulfilled life. None of us wake up in the morning and say, you know what? I want my life to be absolutely, utterly worthless. I I just want to be devoted to futility. Nobody does that. Nobody thinks that way. But what Peter's suggesting is that apart from Jesus, this is the trajectory of of our lives, futility. I think Jesus gives a really insightful parable that I I want for us to read and just think about. I think Jesus actually addresses this in a really unique and a profound way. It's Luke chapter 12, verses 16 through 21. Listen to how Jesus says this in his parable. He says, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. You got you to love Jesus' stories. That's what a parable is, by the way. It's uh, kind of like, um, I don't want to say Aesop fables, but you get the idea. It's kind of like, it's a story that has a moral value. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's given this story that has a moral value at the end of it. And I think what Jesus is trying to convey is that you want to know what an unproductive or an unfulfilled or a futile life looks like. Jesus is going to unpack that for us. Listen to what he says. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and I will build bigger ones. And then I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain for years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, be merry. Pause right there for a second. He's classic, what we would maybe call capitalist. Classic capitalist. Did really good for himself. Made a lot of money. Was very productive. Did really well. He tears down his house, builds a bigger house. You know, think of warehouse. Now he's got massive warehouse. And his warehouse is filled with abundance and grain. And he's able to kind of sit back and enjoy, quote, unquote, retirement. Because he has been, quote, unquote, successful. He, he's arrived. Apparently, that's kind of how Jesus seems to be setting the story up here. And then Jesus goes on to add in verse 20. He says, but then God said to him, you fool. Before we go on any further, because Jesus is going to give us the punchline, what an odd thing at this point right now. I just think like this guy has an observation of himself, an opinion of himself. I've arrived. I've succeeded. I can sit back and enjoy life because I've done really, really well for myself. But then God has an opinion too. And God's opinion is foolish. There's something about your life that is deeply deficient. And here's what God goes on to say as the story continues. But then God said, you fool, this very night, your life will be demanded of you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how... It will be for whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. It's the last little phrase that I want for us to think about. 
And I want to dovetail the idea of this last phrase that Jesus says here with what I think Peter's describing. So futile ways of life or a life that is empty or an empty way of life or is useless or unproductive spiritually. I think what Peter is actually saying is deeply connected to what Jesus is saying is the opposite of that would be a life that's rich towards God. So the natural question we should be asking is what does a life that's rich towards God look like? Because apparently, according to Jesus, according to Peter, this is what we should be thinking about. Now, I want to pause real quick and say, does this mean that we can't be productive financially? Does this mean that we can't build for ourselves barns and build for ourselves things? Is capitalism bad? No, none of that, I don't think, is at all what Jesus is saying. In other words, if God's given you the ability to make money or do well for yourselves or build a house or put a room addition, go for it. Go for it. But don't get lost in the pursuit of that in, what, in terms of losing your connectedness to God or that is rich towards God. So in other words, it's possible to be very wealthy and yet at the same time have a heart that's very much like God. Meaning you use your wealth to be generous. That, that, I would argue, is a life that's rich towards God. So what I want for us to think about as we now begin to move on into the bigger, broader chapter. is I think what Peter's saying is that God saved you. He rescued you from a life that was once aimless, directionless, futile. That was heading in a direction which was really unproductive. Now, again, one last little layer I want to think about this in terms of a nuance. Why is this so important? If you, if you want to read an Old Testament passage or a book on this, go to the book of Ecclesiastes and just spend some time there thinking about this. This was written by a guy by the name of Solomon. Some of you are probably familiar with him. He was extremely well-known. He was extremely wise. He was the guy that you would literally say had everything going for him. Everything. He had wealth. He had investments. He had money. He had built an army. Uh, he had literally a posse of wives. He had everything you can imagine. That was kind of an acceptable thing back in the day. He had houses. He had chariots. He had everything you can imagine. And yet, one of the things that Solomon says repeatedly over and over and over again is vanity vanity. It's all vanity. In other words, he uses another analogy. It's like smoke in the wind. In other words, you can see it for a moment, but in an instant, because the wind picks it up and blows it away. And that smoke that seems substantial in a moment is gone in another instant. And what I think Solomon, as well as Jesus, as well as Peter, are all saying, suggesting, that's like our lives. We're here today. We're gone tomorrow. That shouldn't be depressing if you're a follower of Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, if this is all the sum total of your life that you have going for you, that's extremely dis- depressing. But what Jesus is saying is that that's what he rescued you from. He rescued you from a lifestyle that was just going in a direction that was aimless, had no real purpose, no real course, no real action, And Jesus rescued you from that. And he redirected your life so that now you are headed in this direction that is rich towards God. In other words, it's a life that is completely fulfilled. 
What I want to do right now is I want to just jump into the text itself and take a look at a handful of things. Again, some of this is a little bit of review. Um, please feel free to go back and check out our podcast, listen to Pastor James' message, listen to Pastor Connor's message. I think those are some excellent examples of just some good, solid teaching on these passages. So I'm just going to highlight them because, again, like I said, this is review, trying to get ourselves back into the narrative of this book. So if you want, you can write this down. The title of my message is basically A Fulfilled Life. If you want to add kind of a subtitle, four steps to a fulfilled life. So we'll look at four ways, four movements, I think that Peter points out that lead us to a life that is, if you want to use Jesus' term, rich towards God. So, or if you want to use the corporate culture language, what does the corporate culture of Jesus' people look like? Here's what I think it looks like. It looks like, if you want another big phrase, theologically motivated, faithful obedience. Theologically motivated, first phrase, theologically, meaning it's motivated by a deep understanding of who God is, first and foremost, theologically motivated. But then faithful obedience, meaning God does not demonstrate obedience for you. You, ha- you have to do this for yourself. There's parts that God can do, theologically motivated, and there's parts that you got to do, which is faithful obedience. So when God invites us and says, do this and walk this way and live this way and reshape your mind in this particular way, then we have, we have, a, we have an opportunity to ask, will I, out of faithful obedience and theological motivation, do what God's asked me to do, or will I just continue in some degree of obstinacy? Showing forth kind of the true colors, you know, of my former father and mother, Adam and Eve. Or demonstrating the greatness of what Jesus has displayed through coming into this world. In other words, totally faithful obedience to God. Theologically motivated faithful obedience. So what does this corporate culture of Jesus' family look like? Four things. I'm not going to go in depth into all of them, but I'll see how far I can get. So I'll just give you each one of them, and then I will circle back and see how far I can get. And then whatever we don't do today, we'll save for next week. So number one what it looks like. I think the corporate culture of Jesus' family, it looks like, number one, a people who hope in God. A people who hope in God. That's verse 13. Secondly, it looks like a people who are holy. And this is basically verse 14 through verse 16. People who are holy. And then thirdly, it looks like a people who honor God. People that honor God. To use a phrase that Peter uses, they fear God. That seems kind of harsh, uh, we're not going to get into that. I can tell you that right now because there's a lot to unpack there. We'll probably save that for next week. And then fourthly, it's a people who have love for one another. So number one, again, circling back, people who hope in God, people who are holy, people who honor God, and people who have love for one another. That's what the corporate culture of Jesus' people look like, according to Peter, according to Jesus, according to the New Testament. So you might look at your life right now and be like, that doesn't look like anything like me. I'm constantly in despair. I'm never holy. I have no honor for God. I just do what I want. I fear everybody else except God. Or I don't really like anybody. I just hate them all. Then I would say, you don't embody the corporate culture of Jesus. Maybe, maybe you're, you don't belong to him. And maybe now's an opportunity to really do some heart searching and think, but I want to belong to him. Maybe... You prayed a prayer at one point in your life, and your life looks nothing like that. And again, this is not about perfection. It's about direction. It's about direction. 
Every employee of Starbucks does not always 100% of the time embody the vibe of Starbucks. But that corporate culture is part of what Peter's saying this is what we're called to live out. So let's jump in and we'll wrap this up. We'll see, again, so how far we go. Number one, I want us to take a look at verse 14. Again, some of this is review. Uh, he describes, sorry, verse uh, 13, that we are people who hope in God. He says, therefore, preparing our minds for action, be sober-minded, set your hope fully in the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he uses this phrase, set your hope. One of the things I want for us to think about with regard to this is that there is a great distinction between people of despair and people who are hopeful. That doesn't mean that people, if you are a follower of Jesus, you will always be in this constant state of hopefulness. Part of what it means to follow Jesus is that we kind of wrestle with that. There might be moments, might be even days and maybe even weeks where we find ourselves in moments of despair. But what a Christian does, one who embodies that corporate culture of Jesus' people, they fight for hope. They fight for that. One thing is, I think it's important to note that I think Peter's trying to state for us is that hope is not like this magical, you know, uh, emotion that just comes upon us, overtakes us. It can. I mean, God can do that. There could be a moment where you're in a state of despair, and all of a sudden God just brings hope floods it into your heart, and you're just like, I don't even know where that came from. All of a sudden, I went from total despair, despondency, to hopefulness. God can do that. But what I think Peter's saying is that the way that hope typically works out in our hearts is, is by way of this process of cooperating with God. Listen to how he describes this. He says that here's what you can do. In other words, if I can put it this way, hope is something that can be cultivated. If you could commoditize hope, put it into some form of commodity, meaning it is something that you can obtain, you can lay a hold of, you can incorporate, bring into your life, which then gets brought into your lifestyle. I think what Peter is saying is that this is what hope can be. It can be cultivated. You could, you could work by way of some actions to cultivate this rich treasure called hope in your life. How? Here's what he says. Prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Again, Pastor James did a great job teaching on this, so I'm not going to steal his thunder from that. But just, again, by way of highlight, I think what, try, what he's trying to communicate is that, look, our hearts might be in a state where we're not ready for action. We're allowing wave of, wave of grief and despondency wash over us. But what I think Peter's saying is that you have been given this treasure to not constantly just become a victim of despondency fight for hope how he says prepare your minds prepare your minds for actions and then he goes on to say be sober-minded which is the opposite of being drunk if you think of it this way it's not i don't necessarily think he's talking about a physical being drunk though he could be i think it's sure for sure could be there but the big idea is that what happens when you have too much to drink you're making choices that you normally wouldn't make when you are sober. You might be doing things that you normally wouldn't do. In other words, your inhibitions are beginning to be broken down. Those convictions that you had when you were fully sober are now beginning to be eroded. So you are now more, you know, quote unquote, loose to do things that maybe you normally would not have done. And what I think Peter is saying is that, look, as followers of Jesus... 
Despondency and grief might wash over us, but the way that we combat that, the way that we restore ourselves into that pathway of hope is we remind ourselves of who God is. We resist anything that's going to numb or dull or take away or reduce our ability to think critically or to think carefully or to think beautifully about the goodness of God. I think what he's suggesting is that here's how you do this. Prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. And this will allow us to set our hope fully upon the grace. If you think of it this way, what is it that we oftentimes by default do when we find ourselves in a state of despair? We try to numb the pain. And we do it lots of different ways. I mean, none of us have the same recipe by which we, you know, numb ourselves, right? Um, that's what Instagram's there for, is to kind of share best practices. Hey, how do you numb your pain? I ain't numb my pain this way. But the point of the matter is, is that we all have our different, like, little cocktails that we put forth to numb the pain. And what I think Peter's saying is that, be careful not to do that. In other words, set your hope, because that's what we need. Hope is the opposite of despair. And the way that we embrace hope is we think about the grace. Again, theologically, motivated. We think about what God has done for us. It's one of the reasons why I would even add, we need each other. We need other people in our lives to help us. I mean, this even kind of plays out. I was reading an article recently about just health and fitness. It was talking about how when you are working out or running or doing some sort of uh, goal accomplishment in terms of a physical feat, and you're doing it on your own, you are less likely to accomplish your goals than if you were to do it with a team of people. Because as you're doing this with other people, you're more likely to push each other on towards even greater accomplishments and achievements. I think the same is true spiritually as well. That when we are alone, we are by ourselves. That's one of the things I think we've noticed, obviously, 2020, is that there is a lot of time that we had on our own where we were left to ourselves, left to kind of stew in our own despondency. And it's easy to get stuck there. Guys, I think we all can admit, I mean, we've all been stuck there. That's why we need each other. So we need fellowship, community, relationships. That's why we need to be able to be coming together as God's people. And again, gathering. That's why men, especially you men, man, just join us on Wednesday night. It's an opportunity to come out of isolation, step out of those places where you are alone by yourself, trying to figure out life on your own and come into a community where you can wrestle with tough, hard, challenging circumstances of life with a bunch of other men that are trying to figure out as well. What Peter is suggesting is that this is what we do to restore hope into our lives, to cultivate that. So that being said, next week, we're going to pick it up by taking a look at the next one, which is the aspect of being holy. And again, if you want to jumpstart this, go ahead and read beginning at verse 14 on down to the little section, uh, the rest of the chapter that we just read. Just do want to meditate upon it. Think about it. Um, or listen to the message that Connor had preached, and this was probably about four weeks ago. You can just go to our website and check that out. But we're just going to highlight that, and then we're going to just jump right back into the rest of the chapter. And I promise we'll be caught up to speed, and hopefully this was a little bit of a, a good overview that will get us back into the rest of the teaching of the book of First Peter. But my hope in closing 
that as we tune our hearts right now to who God is, that we would recognize that all of us are in desperate need of what God alone offers. So in closing, how about we all stand? I'm going to have Mikey come on up. He'll lead us in a closing song. We will partake of communion together. The reason why we do this, I've had some people ask, why do we do this every week? The big idea is this is a regular practice. Kyle made mention of the practice of generosity. Well, this is the practice of partaking the Lord's Supper together. We do the practice of singing together. We do the practice of listening to Scripture together. There's, these practices are part of what it means to live out the gospel. That might seem mundane, that might seem routine, but the big idea is they shape who we are. If you think of it this way, these are our liturgies. We do them weekly. We're, we unashamedly do them weekly. Just like you have your daily liturgies of waking up in the morning and doing whatever it is that you do. You make a cup of coffee, you swipe on your news, you look at your emails. Those liturgies, I would suggest, oftentimes bring about a lot of chaos and stress and anxiety. These liturgies bring us face-to-face with a God of grace that says, I love you. No matter how broken you are, no matter how broken your lives are, no matter how broken your relationships are, I am for you. So let's sing. We'll partake of the communion together. And by the way, real quick, I'll, I'll say this. We'll partake of it all together uh, at the end. Um, there's two layers on here. The top layer has a little cracker, FYI. All right, it's absolutely impossible to open up. If your fingernails are short, just don't even bother. It's, you won't be able to do it. These things are horrible. Yeah, there I go, I just said it. These are horrible, but these are all that we have right now. One of these days we will get back to like, actual bread, but right now we got these horrible things that we will endure with because hashtag first world problems. Jesus, thank you so much for your great love. And right now, God, we tune our hearts lift up your great name. We invite you, Lord, right now in this space to flood our hearts with the hope of the gospel. Come, Lord. Do what only you can do. Restore hope, God, where there's just been despondency. May your kingdom come. Bring peace, God, where there's just been chaos. Bring forgiveness when there's just been guilt stacked upon guilt and shame multiplied by shame. God, bring healing in our physical bodies. If there's anybody here right now that just is in need of a physical miracle, Lord, would you just meet them right there where they're at?